Psalm 19 from verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other end. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord my rock and my redeemer. Amen. The second reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 from verse 13 to 16. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it is actually, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limits. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Do keep um, that passage, particularly in 1 Thessalonians, open. We're going to be looking at that this morning together. Well, um, yesterday I posted on a few church WhatsApp groups um, asking about what people's favorite biographies were and what inspired them about those biographies. There's nothing like crowdsourcing a sermon introduction, is there? Really helped me. Anyway, I got a number of responses about people's favorite biographies. Uh, someone mentioned uh, Lucky Man, which is the autobiography of Michael J. Fox. So Michael J. Fox was Marty McFly in Back to the Future. Um, Michael J. Fox struggles with Parkinson's disease, which is a horrible condition. And yet his attitude to it is not one of bitterness. It says in the biography that he, th 
He, he sees that condition that he has as helping him grow as a person. He describes it as the gift that keeps on giving. And that was something that was really inspiring. A number of people mentioned Michelle Obama's biography or autobiography, Becoming, as one that is inspiring. They cited the fact that she was a woman who was able to pursue her career whilst also being a devoted mother. The fact that she was able to rise to prominence despite coming from a fairly humble um, background without any particular privilege. And also the investment that she made once she got to the top in schools and um, children and people from deprived areas, going to poorly performing schools, um, going to their assemblies, supporting them. A number of Christian biographies came to the surface, so some mentioned um, the missionary C.T. Studd, who was a famous cricketer who gave up his career in cricketing to go and share the good news about Jesus in India and China and Africa. And uh, for our life group, the Fallowfield Life Group, historically, we've had, kind of had a group love um, for Corrie Ten Boom's biography, uh, The Hiding Place. We read that a few years ago. Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian woman. Her and her family helped to um, rescue Jewish refugees during the Second World War in the Netherlands. And Corrie endured so much suffering, but um, enjoyed it with great godliness and maturity. And that has been an inspiration um, to many of us who've read it. If you've not read The Hiding Place, highly, highly recommended. And that's what's so great about biographies, isn't it? When you read them, or if you watch them on, on TV, people's stories, um, they engage us. They help us to see through the eyes of someone else. We can step into their world. We can look at the challenges that they face. And the best biographies are inspirational. We learn from them. As we, as we follow these people in their lives, we see how they deal with particular situations, and we learn from them so that we can... Um, put into practice principles in our own lives. They become models for us. And we're looking at this letter in Thessalonians, and in some ways, um, Thessalonians has kind of given us a biography of this church, a shortened biography, one could say. And it's an inspirational one. It's a model one. Paul has written to the church. He um, tells them that they have been a healthy church, they've shown so many um, good characteristics, faith and hope and love, they've been able to endure under great suffering. And it says that they've been an inspiration. If you look in the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 7, it says that the Thessalonians were a model to other churches. So they were an example to other churches at the time, and they can be an example to us as well. Now, last week in chapter 2, Paul focused, the Apostle Paul was focusing on his own um, ministry to the Thessalonians, his priorities, his method, his motivations. And that too is an example to us. He kind of puts on display what a godly life looks like. But the spotlight this week is back on the Thessalonians themselves. We get more snippets from their biography, and it shows us what a healthy church does and how it acts and responds. And so if we as Grace Church are going to be a healthy church, a church that pleases the Lord Jesus, then we're going to put into practice the same things that the Thessalonians did. So we're going to look at that together this morning. So the first, first thing we want to see is this first point, accepting God's word. Accepting God's word. Now, Paul, as I've already said, he kind of gushes about the Thessalonians. 
Um, he's really, really positive about them. But if you look down at verse 13, there is one particular thing that he draws attention to. So it says, We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. Now, Paul and the other people who were writing this letter, Silas and Timothy, they were teachers, Bible teachers. And they were the ones who came to the Thessalonians and they shared the good news about Jesus, the message of Jesus with this church. And Paul says that when the Thessalonians heard this message from Paul, they took that message not purely as words from Paul and Silas themselves, but as words from God. And that's interesting, isn't it? You know, just like today, back then, there were all sorts of different teachers who had all sorts of philosophies and thoughts on how you should live your life and kind of takes on the world. Um, but the Thessalonians didn't see Paul as just another philosopher. He wasn't just another guy with a message to share. When they heard Paul and his colleagues preach and open the Bible with them, they saw this as uniquely important, more important than any other message they'd heard, words that in fact did not originate with Paul, but originated with God himself. So when they heard Paul speak, they believed they were hearing God speaking to them through Paul. And Paul confirms that they were right to think that. He says, verse 13, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. Now that's quite a big claim, isn't it? That's a big thing for Paul to say to these people. He says, look, when you heard me teach you, you heard God speak to you through me. That's what he says. And that principle of God speaking through the Bible is true today. You know, one of the names we have for the Bible is the Word of God, and, and that is a, a title that the Bible claims for itself. It refers to itself as God's words. It's God's speech to us. You know, just think, there are many people in this world who would love the idea of God speaking to them. They'd love to know what he thinks, what he would have to say. And Christians can say, well, God has spoken. He does speak today. And he speaks primarily through the Bible, through the scriptures. And so we hear, as it were, God's voice whenever we read the Bible, whenever it's opened. Whether you read that by yourselves, whether you read it midweek with small groups, but especially through preaching. So Paul and Silas and Timothy were preachers, and Paul says particularly that when the Thessalonians heard the message through them, they heard the word of God through their preaching. Now, in the 16th century, a group of Swiss Christians came up with a statement of faith called the Second Helvetic Confession, okay? And one of the articles of the Second Helvetic Confession says this, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And that is an, a statement of faith that is taken from passages like this in Thessalonians. Now, if that is true, 
then that radically affects the way we think when we come to church on a Sunday morning. Okay? It radically affects our view of what I'm doing right now. Okay? If I'm doing my job properly, if I'm being faithful to what the Bible says, then God is speaking to you right now through me. And it's not about me or, or my power. It's about the power of the word itself. But God is speaking through preaching. Now, isn't that an immense thing to consider? That as we gather on a Sunday morning, we come together and we hear the words of God. And this puts responsibility on kind of both parties here, doesn't it? So for someone like me or Pete or anyone else who stands up here and preaches on a Sunday morning, our job is to faithfully proclaim what the Bible says, to proclaim it clearly and openly. Okay, This is not a platform for me to give my hot take on whatever current issue is around at the moment. It's not about me and my opinions. My job is to open up what Scripture says and apply it to the world and to proclaim to you the Lord Jesus from it. And for us, as we come to church on a Sunday morning and hear a sermon, we should come expectantly because we're coming to hear God speak. Okay, this is not just a Christian version of a TED Talk, just another bit of content to consume alongside the other podcasts and articles and whatever we kind of um, read during the week. God's word carries special authority and power and life in a way that nothing else does. That's the claim. It is an immense privilege and responsibility to open the Bible and to hear it preached on a Sunday morning. We must take it seriously. We must. Now, it's interesting to me, if you look down at the passage, that Paul is particularly thankful that these Thessalonian Christians took his words as God's words. Did you see that? We thank God continually. Why is he so thankful for this in particular? Well, I think there are at least two reasons. One reason is this, and it's in the passage. When we accept the Bible as God's words, we enable ourselves to grow because it is the word that enables growth in our lives. Did you see that verse 13 right at the end? The word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So God's words, they have an active quality. They go to work inside us when we hear them. And many of us will have experienced this firsthand. Just think about your favorite verses from Scripture, maybe your favorite Bible passages. You know, they they are probably precious to you now in a way that they weren't precious in the past. They've become more real. They've become more striking. They've become more comforting when you've gone through difficult times. Or think of it like this, you know, many of us have wrestled through obedience to the Bible. We've, we've come across commands that we find hard, and it's kind of rubbed up against us the wrong way, but we've, we've had to kind of take it on board and learn to try and obey. Think about, you know, God's command to put others' needs before ourselves. Perhaps we've slowly learned to do that, even though it's been hard and we've grappled with it. God's work goes to work in us by the Holy Spirit. It changes us. It molds us. It shapes us over time to become more like the Lord Jesus. It's at work. But notice, it's at work in those who believe. 
So you need to believe that the Bible and faithful preaching is God's word. Because if you don't, you hinder your own growth. Now, this doesn't mean we, we don't ever have doubts about Scripture. But it does mean that at root, there should be this fundamental posture in our heart that says, yes, the Bible is God's word. It is God's word. And so you can see why Paul's so thankful. Lord, I thank you so much. You can imagine him praying, can't you? Lord, I thank you so much that these Thessalonians accepted your, our preaching as your words because it's helping them grow. It's helping them flourish. The second reason I think Paul is thankful, and this is kind of more implied, I think, than explicit in the text, but I think it's there, and it's simply this. It's pretty easy to not take the Bible as God's word. It's pretty simple and easy to reject the Bible as simply man-made. You know, cynicism regarding the Christian message is not new to today, okay? It's not a, a purely contemporary concern. Paul and his friends faced constant opposition. People doubted Scripture as much back then as they do now. Plenty of people rejected Paul's preaching. Lots of people did. And so when he saw the Thessalonians take it on board, take that gospel message and run with it, it was a cause for joy. And it shouldn't be taken for granted. You know, one of the joys of working at a church like Grace Church is seeing so many people who do receive scripture as the word of God. And I've been giving thanks for that this week, as Paul did for the Thessalonians. And the encouragement there then is to keep doing so. Keep being attentive when you come to church each week. Keep listening to sermons as if you were meeting with God and hearing from him because you are. Take this privilege seriously. Soak yourself in the scriptures and you will grow. It is at work in you. But I'm also aware that some of us have a lot of struggles with the Bible. Now, all of us have to wrestle with the Bible in some way, in some form, at some point. We have questions about its accuracy, its reliability, even its morality in the ways it speaks about certain issues. And I just want to say, if that is you, questions are allowed in this church. You don't need to keep them to yourself. We as a church leadership would love to help walk you through them. So if you're struggling with scripture in any way, please do come and talk to us. It would be our joy and privilege to try and support you in whatever way we can. Come and speak to us. And let's all collectively do what we can to imitate the Thessalonians and accept God's word. Okay, well, we've seen that the word of God was at work in the Thessalonians. We're now going to see one way in which it was at work particularly. So secondly, imitating God's churches. Imitating God's churches. You know, it is amazing how good humans are at imitating others. Um, I think of when I was in school, and when you're in school, they've got lots of subcultures and kind of groups and cliques that define themselves, and, and each of these groups has a kind of visual language. They tend to dress the same and define themselves in terms of how they look. So there was like all the sporty lads who would wear, you know, Man United or Man City tops, um, Adidas popper tracksuit bottoms, Nike trainers, and they'd all kind of play sports and be over here. Or you might have the kind of trendy crew over here. They'd, they'd have their popped collars and their boat shoes that they wore without socks, looking really cool. 
Um, or you might have like the kind of alternative groups. You know, in my school, they'd be the ones who wear big um, black hoodies with bands on them like Nirvana, baggy jeans, copious amounts of eyeliner. And what happened is all these subcultures would exist in the school. And some of them kind of defined it themselves against the other groups. Um, but everyone within the groups looked similar. And it's just the way we work, isn't it, as humans? We, we imitate each other. But not all imitation is intended, is it? I've had a conversation with a number of people recently about how we've realized as we've got older that we've become just like our parents, and not in a good way. All those mannerisms that we got annoyed at, we've kind of embodied them ourselves to our dismay. Well, Paul tells the Thessalonians that they have been imitators of other churches, but it's not an imitation that they would have welcomed. Look at verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. They imitated by suffering. That is, they were persecuted for their faith by their own countrymen, fellow Thessalonian people. We don't know exactly at this point what it is the Thessalonians were facing. They were probably facing persecution from Jewish religious leaders and possibly Gentile um, leaders as well who were suspicious of churches, thought they would go against the emperor and against the state. Um, But whatever suffering they were facing, it was serious. So in chapter 1, verse 6, it says that they faced severe suffering. Severe suffering. And Paul is saying that this is an imitation of the Judean churches. Now, we're going to look at... um, this passage's view of Jewish people very shortly. But note for now that the word Jews in verse 14 can also be translated Judeans. And if that's the case, then it makes sense of the comparison that Paul makes. So the Judean church faced opposition from Judeans, and so the Thessalonians faced opposition from their own countrymen as well. And why does Paul make this point? Well, actually, he makes it to encourage them So the Judean churches were the first churches, like the originals. They were the well-established Christian community. And so it's as if it's saying, look, guys, I know you're struggling, but you know what? You're not the first to struggle. Actually, the very first churches have struggled just like you have. Okay, you're not doing anything wrong. And it's meant as a comfort to them. So whatever hostility the Thessalonians have faced, they would know that there are other churches just like them who are facing the same things. There was solidarity. There was a connection across national lines. In other words, Christians facing opposition is a thing. It's not abnormal. And I wonder if this is a lesson that we as a church need to take on board at the moment. You know, Grace Church has always wanted to be a church active in the community. We heard about Fallowfield Choir um, just earlier. We don't want to be a holy huddle, kind of Christian bubble. Um, We want to be able to be involved with other people in our city and community. And, And we do. We rub shoulders with our neighbors, with our colleagues, with friends. And my sense is that for the people of this church, what we try to do is we we want to be a place that we want to be a people who are sensitive to where non-Christians and people who aren't in the church, where they're coming from. Okay, we don't want to be judgy. We don't want to smack people in the face with the Bible. We don't want to be aggressive with our beliefs. 
We want to be gentle and winsome in how we communicate our faith. And I, and I think we do a good job of that. And obviously, being gentle and winsome bears clear fruit, doesn't it? It's always going to be more effective than being aggressive and hostile to other people. Okay. But one danger in all of this is that we might think if we are gentle and wise enough, we can avoid opposition altogether. We think that if we just understand our culture really well, if we nuance what we say just enough, if we show enough compassion to those outside the church, we can head off at the pass any hostile reactions we may get to the gospel. That may be the case sometimes, but it won't always be the case. You see, the gospel message, the word of God, is offensive to many people. People do not want Jesus to be their savior. They certainly don't want him to be their Lord and to submit to his rules. And so sooner or later, most Christians are going to face some form of hostility. That's just a reality. And the truth is, all the gentleness in the world cannot stop that. You know, the Lord Jesus was the most gentle and gracious man who ever lived, and he was crucified. The pattern for the Christian church is that it will suffer for what it believes. And so if we have avoided opposition so far, God has been gracious to us, and we should be thankful. But we cannot take that for granted, nor should we think it's within our control. We should be ready to receive hostility for our faith. But here's the lesson from 1 Thessalonians. If you do, and some of us will be receiving hostility one way or another, you are not alone. You are merely imitating Christians all over the world now and Christians throughout history, the Thessalonians and the Judeans. Suffering for being a Christian is a thing. It's the norm. And perhaps here is another reason why we should accept the Bible as God's word, because it works in us. And part of its work is to give us the resilience to withstand such suffering. It will give you hope and perseverance. But only if you believe in God's words will you have the strength by God to withstand suffering and not just give up when it gets challenging. And perhaps here too is a reason why Paul was thankful that the Thessalonians took his teaching on board because he knew then that the word would work in them and give them that endurance. And so we should take God's word as it is, and that will help us if we have to face opposition for our faith. Well, persecution is hard, but what will Christians who suffer then, what will they do about that? How will they see justice? Will they see justice? And finally then, let's see, anticipating God's judgment. This is verses 15 to 16. Now, in these verses, Paul speaks a little bit further about those who persecuted the Judean churches and other churches. And he speaks in extraordinarily strong language. And he talks about these opponents. He talks about them who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. These are people who drove out Paul and his companions. Paul says that these are people who displease God and, in fact, are hostile to everyone why is that? It says, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Now, do you notice what Paul is saying there, okay? 
These, these opponents were trying to stop Paul preach. If you stop Paul preaching, or if you stop any preacher, you're getting in the way of people hearing a message that will save them. It is inhumane, Paul says, to shut down gospel preaching. To cancel Christian preachers is almost a crime against humanity because you're cutting off a message that will, the only message that will save, the message of Jesus. And worse than that, if the message of preaching is the word of God, as we've already said, then if you try and shut down Christian preaching, you are trying to put a muzzle on God. You're trying to gag God. And what does this result in? It says these people fill up the measure of their sins, and they will receive God's wrath. Verse 16. This is a tricky verse to translate. We don't know whether it refers to wrath kind of expressed at the time when Paul was writing, or whether um, he's referring to the future day of judgment that will come at the end of history. Either way, the results are the same. God will judge those who oppose the message and try and shut down preaching. Now, it's, it's, it's a harsh few verses, but Paul wrote them to reassure these Thessalonians who are being persecuted. You know, the Lord is like a loving father. He is a loving father. He will not put up with his, with his children being persecuted. Those who are cruel towards them will not get away with it. And those who would reject God's word and try to muzzle him will be dealt with. There is this anticipation of judgment. And it's there to comfort those Christians, particularly who are being persecuted. Whatever hostility we will face in this world... God sees, God cares, and God will bring justice. But who are the people that, God, that Paul is denouncing in these verses? Who are these opponents that he has such strong language to describe? Verse 14 says, it's the Jews. Now, there have been many people over time who have made the claim that the New Testament is anti-Semitic. That is, it is racist against Jewish people. And for people who want to make the case that that's true, this is prime evidence. They go to 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 to 16. And we've got to take stuff like this seriously. Because the truth is, anti-Semitism tragically has been present throughout church history, and that is to our shame. A few examples. So in 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council of the Church made an edict that said that Jews should live in ghettos and wear distinctive dress that would mark them out as Jewish. This is not 1930s Germany. Okay, this is the church in the Middle Ages saying this. Martin Luther, a hero to many of us as Protestants and evangelicals, close to the end of his life, he wrote a book that was called On Jews and Their Lies. He was angry at the fact that he tried to share Jesus with Jewish people and they had not received the message. And in his anger, he wrote this book, and he said that synagogues should be burnt, prayer books destroyed, and rabbis should be banned. On Jews and Their Lives was available at the Nuremberg rallies where Hitler and the Nazis 
kind of gave their speeches to the people, you could pick up that book. They, they enabled it as kind of recommended reading. And when we read a passage like this, it talks about um, certain Jews who are Christ killers. The, the idea of Jews being Christ killers is an anti-Semitic trope that has gone through history. It has led to violence and persecution and murder of Jewish people at the hands of those who would profess to serve Christ. It is all over history. Pogroms, crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, and even the silence of many church leaders during the Holocaust. It is no overstatement to say that there is Jewish blood on the hands of the church. And the tragic thing is that many have used these verses to justify their anti-Semitism. Now, here at this church, we should not think that this is just an abstract matter over there, that, isn't, that it isn't relevant to us. Manchester has the second largest Jewish population in the country, in the UK, in fact. Jewish people are our neighbors and colleagues. You may have Jewish neighbors and colleagues who you don't even know are Jewish. And Grace Church has had a number of Jewish people come through its doors over the last few years, people who would say they wouldn't follow Jesus, but for whatever reason has come into a church, which for some Jewish people is a miracle that they would come into a church, given the history. Just last night at the um, Benito Lounge, I was there with the Fallowfield Community Choir, I had a conversation with a Jewish man who's been part of the choir and has come to this church. So it matters how we relate to this people. So the question is then, is Paul being anti-Semitic here in 1 Thessalonians? Well, it might appear so on first glance, but there are a few extra factors that we should consider. The first is this. Paul himself was Jewish, and he retained his Jewish identity even after coming to faith in Jesus. He did not see his Jewishness and his Christianity as like mutually exclusive. He talked about his heritage many times in the um, epistles, and he spoke of non-Christian Jewish people as his brothers and sisters. The Judean churches referred to in verse 14 were full of Judeans, that is, Jewish people. So when Paul talks about the Jews in verse 14, he doesn't speak about them as a kind of group of which he is outside but he is inside the group of Jewish people. So whatever he means here in these verses, he can't just mean all Jews. Second consideration is this. Paul elsewhere shows great compassion for unbelieving Jewish people. In Romans 9 verse 1, he says that he feels anguish in his heart, deep anguish. His heart is broken because there are Jewish people, his own brethren, who have not come to see Jesus is their Messiah. He says he would, it's as if he would rather be cut off and judged in their place so that they may have life. Okay, so Paul is not a hateful anti-Semite. But what about these particular verses? Well, there are good reasons to think that the comma at the end of verse 14 shouldn't be there. This is the first time I've ever preached on a comma. But if you have a look at verse 14, right at the end, it talks about the Jews, comma. Now, in the original Greek manuscripts, there are, there's no punctuation. So, you know, Paul didn't write commas or full stops. They're added by translators trying to interpret the text. But if you take that comma away, the meaning of the verse changes. 
So with the comma, it talks about the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets drove us out. Yeah, that is the Jews collectively. Without a comma, it's simply the Jews who killed Jesus and the prophets. That is particular Jewish people, not all Jewish people. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so there's a, there's a difference now, I think this, to, to read it without the comma uh, and to talk about a restricted group of Jewish people makes sense of the context. Clearly, only certain Jewish individuals drove out Paul. Um, Acts tells us that other Jewish groups gave Paul a hearing. So it seems that Paul is speaking primarily of Jewish leaders who were opposing him and hostile to him, religious leaders. Jesus does the same in Matthew 23 when he talks about woe to the Pharisees and the scribes. Some of the same language that Paul uses here picks up on what Jesus says. But primarily in their sights are Jewish leaders, those who are particularly hostile and opposing to the, to the message. So Paul is not being anti-Semitic here, and this passage provides no justification whatsoever for discrimination towards the Jewish community. Paul would be appalled to see how Christians have treated Jewish people in history. Now, to be sure, Jewish people who do not know Jesus are still in need of salvation. But that is true of everyone, Jew and Gentile. We all stand guilty before God. Now, God's anger, his wrath, is real. And that is why we all need to desperately be saved from it. Which brings us to the end here. And perhaps this is where it's most relevant for us personally. You see, it wasn't just Jewish leaders who faced God's wrath. Actually, the Thessalonians did at one point as well. At one time, like all of us, they did not give God the honor that they should have done. They worshipped false gods. They did not live for Jesus at all. And yet God offered salvation to them through Jesus. And as it says in chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus is the one who rescues us from the coming wrath. And the truth is he will do that for anybody, Jew or Gentile. Anyone who will come to Jesus can be rescued and receive mercy and salvation from his judgment at the end of time. So just as we finish, you know, we've talked about the Thessalonians being a model to us. And for those of us perhaps in the room who would not call Jesus their Savior and Lord, who would not refer to themselves as a Christian, perhaps the most important thing you can do is imitate the Thessalonians in this way. Turn to Jesus. Come to him as Savior and Lord. Put your trust in him. Trust in his death and resurrection. Him taking the penalty for our sins on his body in our place. If we do that, we will not face God's coming judgment. There is an, a, a glorious offer for anyone who will come to Christ to escape the coming wrath of God. And perhaps for you this morning, who that's a relevant message to, Perhaps this is the word of God to you. The doctrine of God's wrath is something that does not create in us judgmentalism towards other groups, 
other ethnic groups, other people. It humbles all of us. We're all deserving of God's justice and judgment. Our only hope is in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you've given us in your word your speech. We thank you that you've spoken to us this morning as we've looked at 1 Thessalonians. We thank you that we have the privilege of hearing what you have to say. We don't have to feel in the dark about what you think about things because you've communicated to us and you speak actively now. Lord, please, may we be people who hear what you say, who accept it as your words. Lord, for those of us who struggle um, with the Bible, I pray that you would um, bless us, that you would reveal to us um, the truthfulness of it. And may Grace Church be a place, Lord, where people who struggle with such questions can be supported and helped. And Lord, it, it does humble us to think of the fact that you will come again in judgment through Jesus. There is a day of wrath to come. And Lord, we, we desperately need salvation from that if we don't already. But Lord, we thank you so much that you've given us the Lord Jesus. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our neighbors and our friends. Have mercy on this city. Have mercy on this nation. And Lord, may you work by your Holy Spirit through your word to bring people to faith, cause them to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus as their loving Savior and King. And may we honor you in the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen.